Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we bring you an entry from a series of papers presented at our recent conference, Bioethics Nexus, the Future of Healthcare, Science, and Humanity. In this particular edition, we present the first of a two-part podcast from Dr. Susan Hack, a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist, and her paper, The Costs of Technology in Women's Health. In this paper, Dr. Hack argues that our technological society, ruled as it is by the technological imperative, is actively engaged in the pursuit of progress, regardless of the cost. In this insightful paper, she explores some of the costs of technology in women's reproductive health, costs to the art of medicine, as well as to the nature of marriage, reproduction, and children. First, though, please mark your calendars today for our first annual Phoenix Conference. The focus of the conference will be the ethics of aging, death, and immortality. Confirmed speakers include S.J. Olshansky, Ph.D., from the University of Illinois at Chicago, Jim Keown, J.D., from Georgetown University, Ava Samuelson, Ph.D., from Arizona State University, C. Christopher Hook, M.D., from the Mayo Clinic. Highlights will include a debate between J. Olshansky and Aubrey de Grey, a biomedical gerontologist. More details will be forthcoming, but plan on joining us March 3rd through 9th, 2008. Academic and continuing education opportunities will also be available. We live in a technological society ruled by the technological imperative that says the only matter of importance is progress, which must be pursued at all, uh, regardless of the cost. This progress is often ill-defined, if defined at all. We are committed to the quest for continually improved means to carelessly unexamined ends. And I think that's the truth of all of this technology. While cost-benefit analyses are frequently performed to ascertain the effort and the efficiency of progressive techniques in terms of monetary value, seldom do we truly count the immaterial costs of progress. Our new god of progress has robbed us of our ability to appreciate the deeper meaning of the various aspects of our lives. Medicine is no exception. Progress and technology have become essential ingredients in the great humanitarian project to cure disease, prolong life, and alleviate suffering. Goals which have been translated by the technological imperative into health, immortality, and happiness at any cost. Goals which have also become the expectations of our patients. In the process, medicine's focus has subtly changed from one of healing to one of enhancement, a distinction that is very often elusive. Ironically, as part of the project, medicine has also lost much of its ability to care, since care is neither productive nor conducive to the project. One area of medicine where these changes are vividly portrayed is the arena of women's reproductive health, where, to the goals of life, health, and happiness, a perfect child of one's own is added. Here, too, we have failed to count the cost to consider the immaterial cost of such a project. We fail to see how our blind pursuit of an elusive but noble goal is threatening not only the profession of medicine, but the very nature of our humanity as well. We've lost sight of the essence of what it means to be begotten, not made. 
This paper will explore some of the costs of technology in women's reproductive health, costs of the art of medicine, as well as to the nature and meaning of reproduction, marriage, and children. Traditionally in medical care, the physician was a diagnostician. Confronted by a patient with a laundry list of complaints, he listened attentively, gleaning additional evidence from examination of the patient and arriving at a diagnosis. <coughs> Appropriate treatment was then tailored to the particular patient. This process involved a considerable degree of judgment that was referred to as the art of medicine. Technology is changing all of this. The diagnostic skills of the physician are undergoing atrophy as his judgment is now simply concerned with ordering the most appropriate tests. In the area of women's health, ultrasonography is such a technique. It is an invaluable instrument developed to facilitate and confirm a presumptive diagnosis and offer a non-invasive view into the pelvis as well as the womb. However, it has now supplanted the physical diagnosis. A subjective physical exam is no longer necessary, and therefore such skills are being lost. The physician is no longer the diagnostician, but instead an interpreter of tests, progressively alienated from patients by lack of personal contact. Knowledge and skills, once considered important to the practice of obstetrics, are no longer useful. Determining the position of a fetus was once a, a, a regular part of obstetrical care. Um, it was accomplished manual, manually by a skill referred to as the Leopold Maneuver. Now a sonogram is ordered. At one time, obstetricians were knowledgeable of the various types of pelvises, the forces of the labor, and were skilled at clinical pelvimetry. Such knowledge enabled them to assist and maneuver a fetus through the birth canal. Today, no maneuvering is necessary. A cesarean section will be performed, uh, making the acquisition of such esoteric knowledge and skills obsolete. Well, Jacques Lule might argue that these manual skills are techniques, they are not machines, uh, an important distinction for medical care, where we are tempted to think of patients in bodily rather than personal terms. There are many new techniques and instruments that have been developed that have greatly enabled gynecologists to diagnose and treat various conditions in minimally invasive fashion. Many more have been developed and incorporated only to prove problematic or costly. Home uterine activity monitoring and electronic fetal monitoring are two prime examples. Home uterine activity monitoring was developed in an attempt to prevent preterm delivery and women at high risk for preterm labor. A telemetric device was utilized to transmit uterine contractions from a patient's home to a centralized monitor. <clears throat> the system involved daily telephone contact between the patient and a monitoring nurse as well. While costly, the system was felt to be justified by the higher costs of neonatal intensive care that were avoided. However, subsequent studies de determined that the benefit of such a system was due not to the telemetric technology, but to the daily personal contact on the phone. Similarly, electronic fetal monitoring was developed and incorporated into obstetrical practice in the 1970s as a means of assessing fetal well-being and labor, and as an attempt to reduce neurological impairment and cerebral palsy in newborns. <coughs> While healthy patterns and ominous patterns on the, of the fetal heart rate monitoring were easily identified, there was an incalculable variety of patterns for which a, spe a specific diagnosis was impossible. Clinicians would ultimately err on the safe side, um, performing cesarean sections based on poorly understood fetal heart rate patterns and without consideration of the remainder of the clinical picture. The diagnosis of non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracing became a leading cause of cesarean section, 
even though the majority of these fetuses were found to be uncompromised at birth. Subsequent randomized controlled studies determined that there was no difference between electronic fetal monitoring and intermittent auscultation or listening with a fetoscope in terms of fetal death, neurologic impairment, or cerebral palsy. The only significant difference, the technological cost, was in a much higher cesarean section rate among those with electronic fetal monitoring. Unfortunately, since this technique of electronic monitoring was also integrated into the standard of care by the legal profession, it is now, it is ironically, a permanent fixture in spite of its cost and lack of efficacy. Traditionally, health has been considered the talus of medicine, but our technological mindset is replacing healing and health with enhancement. This is particularly evident in the area of women's health, where a moment's reflection will reveal the fact that much of what is labeled health care seems indeed to be enhancement, <clears throat> as there is no disease present. Such treatment includes menopause hormone therapy, many cesarean sections, contraception, and some aspects of assisted reproductive technology. <coughs> Categorizing these as enhancements, however, depends upon how health, illness, and disease are defined. There are many and various perspectives on this definition, which suggests that health, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. It is a highly subjective, personal, and autonomous determination. This makes any distinction between healing and enhancement highly problematic. Medicine medicalizes reality. It translates the world of experienced difficulties into illnesses, diseases, and medical abnormalities that are then amenable to treat, diagnosis, treatment, and cure. This is clearly illustrated by the recent redefinition of PMS, premenstrual syndrome, or cyclic emotional lability experienced by some women, as PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, for which there is now an expensive treatment. Menopause has been medicalized as well. Is it a disease, an illness, or a normal part of the aging process? For many years, menopause is treated as an illness with non-functioning ovaries likened to a non-functioning thyroid gland. Treatment in the form of replacement hormones was instituted. To lessen the anxieties that some women had regarding the treatment, it was promoted as a preventive therapy for osteoporosis, heart disease, and Alzheimer's disease. More recently, studies have determined that the treatment is potentially more harmful than beneficial, exacerbating heart disease and failing to treat Alzheimer's disease, um, and as well as causing cancer of the breast. The costs of eternal youth were high, are high. But the loss of trust in the medical profession as a result of this misinformation has been also costly. The development of the technique of cesarean section has undoubtedly been a life-saving one for many women over the years, but many, perhaps even a majority, have been subjected to a surgical procedure for misguided reasons, with the number likely to increase significantly in coming years. Originally, the procedure was utilized as a treatment for obstructed labors, which carried a high maternal and neonatal mortality rate and was postulated to lower the incidence of cerebral palsy. However, the cesarean section rate is now almost 27% in the United States, a figure enormously greater um, than the maternal and neonatal mortality rates have ever been in this country. Um, and the incidence of cerebral palsy is unchanged in 30 years in spite of the uh, escalating the cesarean section rate. So one has to ask, just what is being treated? Physician uncertainty? Physician anxiety? Physician efficiency, 
How much more convenient and efficient for all parties involved to have a date and a time planned for the baby, <coughs> not to exceed one hour, for a baby whose sex has already been determined by ultrasound and who is already named, rather than waiting on nature and to be obligated to a process that may take 15 to 24 hours. Such a perspective only enhances the attitude that children are not surprises and gifts to be enjoyed, uh, but are products of con control for our convenience. Today, there's also a movement within the specialty that encourages the more liberal use of cesarean section to prevent injury to the pelvic anatomy in any woman who so, should so choose based on informed consent. Through this escalated use of cesarean section, we as a profession are also losing the ability and skills once highly esteemed, such as the use of forceps and vaginal breech deliveries. Perhaps more than any other technological invention in innovations in history, the combined developments in contraception and reproductive technologies have profoundly impacted our culture's perspectives and attitudes towards such basic concepts as marriage, sexuality, and children. Therefore, before continuing with consideration of these issues, an extended parenthesis is in order regarding sexuality in children. That was the first in a two-part entry from a series of papers presented at our 14th annual conference, Bioethics Nexus. The title of the paper was, The Costs of Technology in Women's Health, delivered by Susan Hack, MD. Dr. Hack is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist and was recently appointed to the Council on Ethics of the Wisconsin Medical Society. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website cbhd.org has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. My name is Ben Mitchell, and I'm Director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.